this morning we continue through the prophet Jeremiah's first message, his first word from the Lord. Last week we saw that uh, he began by remembering back to the ideal. Jeremiah began his first message by remembering back to when Israel was rescued from Egypt and they were devoted to God as a bride to her groom. As a betrothed has an exclusive love for her husband-to-be, so Israel had an exclusive love for the living God. But oh, how things had changed. Now, by Jeremiah's day, God's people had strayed. They were worshipping worthless idols and were becoming worthless themselves. There was no fault with God. And it's not like they rejected God outright. No, they would still worship God on the temple on the Sabbath, but on the other days they were happy to worship Baal and the other regional gods. Because of this, their devotion was compromised. It had been set aside for idol worship and justice was being set aside for personal gain. Now we pick up the message today and we'll see three things. We'll see first of all that God's people, both in Jeremiah's day and our day, we have a clear choice. And then we're going to see a critical failure of leadership, which is a challenge to all of us. And then we're going to see the crucial motivation that can turn all of this around and keep us from idol worship and can keep us from straying. So let's start with the clear choice, and that's in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug in their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And so we can see two things here. God's people have turned their back on the living God, and have turned to their own ways. So we're going to unpack this verse and look to see what God's people are doing wrong. Well, Israel was and still is located in the hill country, in the Mediterranean, with deserts surrounding them. And so with seasonal rain, they are very susceptible to water and Water control and how can we store water? And so there were two main ways in biblical times. The first were wells and they were preferable because they would be dug down to the water table and generally the water quality was much better. The other option was cisterns, which were natural holes in the ground or more commonly holes that were dug by the Israelites to collect rainwater. Uh, Think of a water tank that has run off from the roof. But instead, of course, of having concrete or plastic to work with, they dug a hole in the ground and then they could line it with lime or with clay. And as such, they often leaked. So imagine on on a very hot day, having a choice between fresh, cool spring water bubbling up from the ground or from a cistern, one like this. This is uh, a photo from one in the Negev uh, in Israel. And this cistern has leak. It's muddy. It's dirty. The water has been sitting for a long time. 
And that's what God's people were doing. They were turning their back on the wonderful, life-giving, fresh water, spring water that God offered for water that was discoloured and tepid and tastes like insect remains and hint of dead rat. It's a striking choice, isn't it? And Jeremiah is using this word picture to remind God's people how far they have strayed. And so what God's people were thinking was they could go along on the Sabbath to the temple and draw these lovely, cool springs of water of worship, but the other six days of the week, they seem to be happy while wallowing in the mud. And that's the choice with us as well. Very tempting to come to church on a Sunday and do the Christian thing. But for the rest of the week, we are following our own idols. We are following things that are more important to Christ. Might be a special relationship that we put above Christ. Might be the pursuit of financial security. Might be a career that we're passionate about. All these are good things. But as I said last week, our hearts are idol factories. And all the time they are looking for an idol to fixate on while pushing Christ to the side. And we think that we've got it easy because in our culture we don't have graven images and statues to bow down. Of course I've been in India and, and, and with the Hindu faith there are all over the place statues that are offered in shrines where people are idol worshipping. But we can't say that it's over there in another culture because we have our own Western idols that we delight in. And God is calling us, just as much as Jeremiah's people, away from idols, away from just coming to church on a Sunday and then living our own lives independent of him, but coming into a heart and genuine relationship with him. Instead of turning our backs on God and to ourselves, he wants us to about face and look to Christ. And that is the choice that each one of us has every day. Will we draw from the springs of living water, turning to Christ, or will we turn to our own way and be satisfied with the tepid, murky water from cisterns we have made with our own hands that leak? And so that's the crucial choice. Now we come to the critical failure, a failure in leadership. Twice in Jeremiah's message, God exposes the prophets, the priests, and the kings from failing to lead by example. Not only were the prophets, priests, and kings not leading by example, but they were encouraging the people in idol worship. You see this in two places. The first place is uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the Lord did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal following worthless idols. So let's look at each of those leaders at turn. What were the priests doing? Well, a priest is called to lead people into God's presence to worship. As our representative, a priest stands between us and God to intercede, to pray for us on our behalf. Yet in Jeremiah's day, the priests were failing. They had the law, they had all the teaching about God and how to worship him correctly. Yet the priests, they had no knowledge of God. They did not even know that he was missing from their worship because it had become empty ritual. It's a little bit like 
if the Holy Spirit didn't turn up on a Sunday, would we notice? Well, I hope we hope we would. But the priests had not realised that God was not there in their worship. They didn't even recognise it, and they certainly didn't care. They weren't asking, where is God in this worship? And I trust you ask that question. In fact, I hope you ask that question every week. I mean, where is God today, on this Sunday? Where is he in our fellowship? As we share with each other before and after the cup of tea. Where, where is God in our singing, in our prayers? Where is God today in the preaching? And I hope we can answer on a regular basis, yes, God was here today. But the priests in Jeremiah day weren't asking that question and hadn't even noticed that he was gone. So that's the critical failure of the priests. What about the critical failure of the kings? Well, the kings, the leaders, were rebelling against God. Now, a king's job was to know God's ways and to govern justly. When a king was crowned, one of his first jobs was to handwrite the first five books of the Bible. He was to write out by hand Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, um, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Why? So that he would understand God and his ways and then govern justly. And that hand copy of the Bible was to be beside him, to be with him that he referenced so that he could be a godly king. And in Jeremiah's day, they were not doing that. They were rebelling against God's word, either by intent or just because it didn't suit them. So that's the failure of the kings, an abandonment of God's word. What about the prophets? Well, a prophet's job is to hear God's words and to speak God's words. However, the kings and the people, they tended to listen to prophets, only to the prophets who said things that they liked. They liked to listen to the prophets who made them comfortable, who didn't point out their sin, who even justified what they were doing, who tickled their ears. And it got to the stage where many of Jeremiah's contemporaries were speaking on behalf of Baal and the other other gods of the other nations instead of Yahweh, instead of the living God. And so we have a critical failure of leadership. The priests were not seeking God, nor were they interceding for God's people. The king was governing as he saw fit, and not by the word of God. And the prophets were promoting words of idols, not the words of God. And we see how bad this is in verse 26. Verse 26, As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the house of Israel is disgraced. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets... They say to the wood, you are my father, and to the stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Now if the leaders are turning their backs to God and not their faces, we are not surprised when God's people follow suit. This critical failure of leadership was leading, encouraging God's people to worship other idols. And so we have this clear choice before God's people, but a failure of leadership. Yet there's hope, because there's a, a crucial motivation in this message that can help us stay true to God. 
that can help us identify and reject the idols that keep popping up in our lives. The motivation is tucked in a verse full of typical Jeremiah doom and gloom. Verse 19. It's towards the end of this verse. See if you can identify the crucial motivation. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me. It's those last few words that identify the crucial motivation that can make all the difference in us staying true to the living God. You see, the root cause, the root cause was a deceitful heart and the fact is God's people had no awe of God. To be very careful that we do not lose our awe for the living God. Sometimes we can be so familiar with the Heavenly Father that we forget how incredibly wonderful and amazing He is. So, what is awe and how can we cultivate that in our lives? Well, awe is when we become aware of something so much bigger than us and puts us in perspective. Awe is when we see something that is more beautiful than we can imagine. And it may be when we're out in the mountains and we come across this amazing vista. It might be on Mount Roy looking back down to the lake, to Lake Wanaka. And suddenly we just see how incredibly big God's creation is and how incredibly beautiful it is. And we are just in awe. I mean, even non-Christians are in awe of God's creation and we have that extra step because not only is it big and more beautiful than we can imagine, but we know the creator who made it. A sense of awe. It may be the first time that you held your first child, your oldest child. Do you remember? If you're a parent, I don't think you can forget that moment when you held your oldest child in your arms for the first time. And you realise that this little wee bundle was bigger than your life. Bigger than you could possibly imagine. And the most beautiful thing that you have ever set your eyes on. And you were in awe. And again, as Christians, that awe so naturally turns to praise and worship. Or maybe it was that time that you took communion. You'd had communion before but you were sitting there with the with the cup and the bread in your hand and for the first time you realised how much bigger the cross is than you and how very beautiful our broken and scarred Saviour is. Awe. Awe is closely akin to fear as used in the Bible. You know, you're reading the Bible and it talks about the fear of God and you scratch your head and think, well, am I supposed to be scared of God? That's not right. He's He's our Heavenly Father. Nine times out of ten, 99 times out of 100, if you substitute the word awe instead of fear, then you've got to the heart of what God is saying. The fear of God is the awe of God. Psalm 111 verse 10 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. 
the fear, the awe of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See how there's a progression. We're in awe of the living God, and it, and it brings us correct understanding and then genuine heartfelt praise. Or Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Remember the problem with Jeremiah? It's all about a deceitful heart. The people had a calloused heart. Yet that awe helps us to have an undivided heart, a heart that is centred on Christ. And this is the crucial motivation that makes all the difference and will stop our idol-producing hearts leading us astray and leading us away from Christ. So let's pull this together as we come to the communion table. What are our take-homes today? Well, two things. First of all, choose wisely. Choose wisely. Every day we have a choice between drawing from springs of living water from the living God or turning to cisterns that we have made with our own hands. And Maybe that's a career that you enjoy and you just make it your soul's desire and you like having Christ in your life, a little bit of insurance policy, nice thing to do with the family on the Sundays. But really it's your career and you'll do anything for that. But you realise you will become as worthless as the idol you follow and you will find yourself drawing water that is murky and silty and unsatisfying. And God's call for us today as we come to the bread and the wine is to turn our back on those idols and put Christ, the spring of living water, as the first and the number one. And secondly, we need to cultivate awe. You know, in our prayers often we're busy and we end up listing things and wonderful things and good things, but how often do we pause and ponder, take a scripture or, or something from creation and just allow our hearts to, to meditate on that? Cultivate all. Cultivate all as we look to Christ. Because Christ is the true and better prophet, priest and king. You know, in the Bible there was no person who had all three offices there was no person that was prophet, priest and king at the same time except for Jesus. Indeed, Jesus was the prophet who spoke God's word and who is God's word. He was never a false prophet. He was true and honest and spoke the truth in love. John 5:24. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word... This is Jesus being a prophet and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And this is God's word to us. Jesus has crossed us over from death to life because he is the true and the better prophet. And uh, John chapter 6 verse 63. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. This is Jesus speaking. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life because he is the true and the better prophet. But he is also the true and the better priest. Christ is the one who stands between heaven and earth and intercedes for us. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's, in a nutshell, how we develop all. Fixing our eyes on Christ, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's where he is now. 
interceding for us. So, when I screw up and I need to repent, most days, every day, when I come to God and say I'm sorry, then Jesus has our Father's ear. He is sitting next to our Heavenly Father and says, Douglas doesn't deserve to be forgiven, but I died for him. And Jesus says to his Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, I paid the price, and so I'm forgiven, because Christ lives to intercede for me. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That's Christ's main function, is to pray for you and I, the true and better priest. He's also the true and the better king because where is he? He is at the throne of God and for there the true and better king reigns. He reigns in the now and the not yet. What do I mean by this? Well, whenever the least person, the most horrible sinner, gets on their knees and asks Christ into their life, the kingdom of God breaks through and Christ is king and Christ reigns. Whenever we gather together as God's people, the kingdom of God is here and Christ reigns. Whenever there's a movement of God, like a revival, something that's bigger than one church, God's kingdom breaks through and he reigns. So Christ is our king who reigns here and now, but there will be a fulfillment, a consummation of Christ as king when he returns. And all creation and all God's people, we long for that time when Christ will come again to be the king and his kingdom will know no bounds. For Christ is the true and the better king. Philippians chapter 2, For God exalted him to the highest place and gave Jesus the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Come, Lord Jesus Christ, come. So as we approach the communion table, we are reminded of two things. First of all, we have a clear choice before us this morning. Many of us have been drinking from our own systems, made with our own hands, leaky and muddy and unsatisfying. We have strayed from being in awe of Christ, pushing him to the side, allowing modern-day idols to come into our life. Today, as we come to the bread and the cup, let us turn back from our idols. Let us turn to face the living God. I'll give some time during communion for us to pause and to ask God to show us how we need to repent, how we need to turn back to him. So that's the first thing. Secondly, in the bread and the wine, let us recapture a sense of awe. Let us capture a sense of the price Jesus paid for us on the cross. And as we take the bread and the cup, I pray that God will give us new eyes to see in the bread and the cup the wonderful and true and better prophet, priest and king. Let's pray.